Well, good morning, everyone. As always, it is indeed a privilege and a distinct pleasure to stand in the pulpit today and present the Word of God to his people. I'm grateful to Pastor Booth and to the session that they trust me with this space right here because I just love to encourage the saints in the Word of God that together we might be conformed evermore into the image of our Savior Jesus Christ. And when we can look into the Word of God, see what it meant then, and apply it to how we live today, brother, that's living. So we're going to do that today. I, uh, I know that we, we prayed quite a lot already this morning, but I like to start when I am going to preach it all to pray enough. So I just ask that you bow your heads and you, you pray with me as I talk to the Lord before I start. Father God, I am so grateful for this opportunity to be your servant, that you yourself have raised me up to be your servant in a hundred different ways, in a hundred different circumstances. Lord, your word has promised that your perfect strength is on display, especially in the midst of my weakness. And so like the Apostle Paul, I rejoice in my weakness this day so that you can be on display. Father, please say something by your spirit, through your word, by your servant, to the congregation today and to me, that we can always use to be more like Christ. Thank you for this day, for this opportunity. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen. All right, today's sermon is going to be from uh, the Gospel according to John in chapter 2 and the first 11 verses. I ask if you would stand, please, to acknowledge and honor the holiness and the authority and the marvel of God's Word. First 11 verses of John chapter 2. Hear now God's Word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. When he told them, uh, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. 
So far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Wouldn't it be great if you could see a miracle happen in your life or in the life of somebody that you were close to, somebody you cared about? I mean, we are the believers. Amen. We are the people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. We know what side the bread is buttered on. And yet life can be so difficult sometimes, so complex, so hard to discern which way to zig and which way to zag. And that if, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like if God would just do like he did in the Bible days and have some fantastic miracle for I could, so I could see it, then even though I have faith already, man, that would just cement it for me. I would be forever different for Christ and his kingdom as I walk the earth if only I could have that experience happen for me. Well, there was a time in the Bible that John records here in chapter 2 when that was exactly the case. And Jesus did what John describes in verse 11 of this passage we've just read, where Jesus performed what was his first public miracle. And while, interestingly, while it benefited everyone, there was a very small group that really got it. There was a very small group that really understood and saw the marvel of it. And everybody else was just kind of there, even though they benefited too. We would like to think about ourselves that we were in that first group, not in that second. I'm going to suggest to you through today's message that there is a way for us to discern which group we are really in. And if we find that we're not in the group we'd like to be, what we can do about it. And it comes down to paying attention to and implementing a simple five-word instruction that we get from Jesus' mom. So let's look at the setting. Jesus is at a wedding. The wedding is in Cana in Galilee, which is a small rural town north of Jerusalem. And Jesus is there. He's been invited. His disciples are there. Jesus' mom is there. And that tells us a couple of things that are important to the context. One is that in the first century, very many small towns, we're not talking about Rome or Jerusalem, but small rural towns were very much like third world environments today. There was not a lot of mass communication. There was not a lot of rapid transportation. Everybody lived and worked within just a very small radius of the town in which they were born and lived and passed away. That was their existence, which means two things that are important for us today. The first, as we understand, come to understand this passage, is that here at the wedding at Cana, everybody knew everybody. Now think what that would mean for you to be at a party and you're with everybody who knows you and you know all of them too. So you're very comfortable in their presence, but it also means that if anything happens, good or bad, that reputation is going to stick because 
They're the people who know you all the time. And that sort of creates the dilemma that we read about in this passage. The second thing that it tells us that we need to remember, and Miss Joelle and I encountered this working in the third world in uh, Central Africa for many years. Every little town we went to was like this. There is not a lot to do in a little third world, small rural town. They, they didn't have movie theaters to go to. There was no Dallas Cowboy football to watch on the TV. Nobody owned a PS4. Sorry, kids. So if there was a public event, like a wedding, a celebration, that was the gig. Everybody was there. Everybody who was anybody was there. So this was a major event, this wedding feast at Cana. And in the middle of that, something that was that important, not only to the bride and the groom and their families, but to the whole community, they encounter a crisis. A big event like that, it's not just another wedding. This had to go well, and something bad happened. They ran out of wine. And that was going to become what this couple was known for. They botched their wedding. And so it was a legitimate dilemma. That's what I'm telling you. And Jesus' mom is there by invitation. She knows everybody. She's probably a friend of the parents of the bride and groom because that's the generation that she is a part of. And so she is desperate to help solve the problem. Of course she is. Wouldn't you be, right, in that situation? So she does, I love this, she does what any mother would do. She goes to her one of her kids. And you'll notice she does not give him some specific instruction, some directive to do that will solve the problem. She does what moms do. She drops the hint. She goes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And no direct instruction, but Jesus, her boy, is supposed to know what to do with that and to get right on doing it. Isn't that just like a mom to do? Can I get an amen from the older kids in the room? I mean, not if you're sitting next to your mom, I can't get one, right? But, I mean, in general, that's kind of how that dynamic works. And Jesus is also a friend of the bride and the groom and a member of this community. And Jesus understands something important because of his compassion. This day, here, the wedding feast at Cana, is the bride's day, isn't it? Every woman who has been married, every woman who hopes to be married, knows that the wedding day is your day. It's a celebration of you. It's a celebration of that man's love for you in this setting. It's a celebration of the community's love for you and that you have done things God's way. And Jesus knows that in this setting, and he knows that if he just steps out and does his very first public miracle... He is going to steal all of that glory suddenly and forever on because I just you you heard me say it. Once the reputation is formed, that's how it's going to be known from then on in these little communities. The wedding isn't going to be about 
the bride and the groom anymore. It's not going to be the bride's day once Jesus comes out and does, if he makes a big show of this. It's going to be about what Jesus did. It's going to be about the wine then. And Jesus doesn't want that. He loves these people. It's their day. And he's trying to preserve that. So that's the setting. So they've run out of wine and and Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And he says, turns, and he's probably talking to his friends. He's there with his buddies. He knows everybody. There's a party going on. And she comes in and barges into that and says, they've run out of wine. And the strong implication is, you got to do something, boy. And he turns and he says, woman. Now, let's just pause right there for a second, can we? <laughs> I understand that the scholars have told us that there is some likelihood that this term that gets translated into English as woman is a term of respect. But I like what Christian comedian Mark Lowry has said about this little interaction, and you may have heard this. Mark said that this interaction between Mary and Jesus is one of the proof texts that establishes the divinity of Jesus Christ almost as much as him coming out of the tomb at the resurrection. He said, listen, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. If you're at a party in public with your mama and she tells you to do something in front of all her friends and your answer is, woman, you had better be God. So I speculated a little bit about Jesus' compassion for the wedding and the people involved, that he didn't want to just make it all about him in this setting. That's not what he came there to do. Unlike when he went to Lazarus, who had died, and he went there to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? When he raised the widow's son at Nain, which was another small rural town, he stopped the funeral to go do that. He was not... He's particularly interested in helping everybody be less thirsty here, but his mom had asked him to intervene, and he had said, he explained that whole thing, even though I speculated he didn't want to make it all about him, but it makes sense because he says to Mary, my time has not yet come. This is not my day. It's their day. And also, like a mom, Mary is not stopped by that any. She turns directly to the servants. That's an important word for us today. So hang on to that one, and I'll come back to it. She turns directly to the servants and gives them a five-word instruction in a single sentence that changes the course of the day, and it changes the lives of the servants. When I first was studying this passage and I read Mary turns to the servants after and says about Jesus, do whatever he tells you, I went, you know what? That's pretty good advice, just generally speaking. And then I realized that it's in here, which means it has been stamped with the authority of God's Holy Spirit, which means it's not advice for us today. And I began to wonder looking at what the application of that instruction did for the servants and the disciples of Jesus, I began to wonder what would happen if we implemented that. And what would it look like 
in our lives, in practice, with boots on the ground, if we did whatever he tells us. So what I want to do today, in the next little section, is to get very practical and break down what it would look like for us, word by word, if we took this instruction from Scripture to heart from John chapter 2. Do whatever he tells you. Five simple words. The first one is do. And we're just going to emphasize each word in the sentence. Notice that the instruction was do whatever he tells you. Don't just read about it. We can read a lot of stuff. That's really good. But don't just read about it. Don't just think about it. Don't just talk about and admire it. Do whatever he tells you. You see, if we don't, we're like the football team that's in the huddle and the quarterback calls the play and ready, break. And the quarterback goes to the line of scrimmage and the linemen trundle off to the sidelines and stand there and talk about what a great play that was. Man, the quarterback can sure call him a play, can't he? Somebody should run that play. You know, we should like get a little study or something and really break it down with the X's and the O's and see what could happen if we did that play. Well, in the meantime, the play clock runs off, there's a penalty, and the team gets backed up, and then they've got to call another play. So the linemen run back out to the huddle, and the quarterback calls another play, and ready, break. And the quarterback goes to the line, and the linemen go to the sidelines again and talk about what a great play it is. Well, you can't win the game that way, right? You have to do whatever he tells you. And we have examples of, uh, and instructions of that in Scripture. In James chapter 1 from verses 22 to 25, James says, uh, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, that's the gospel, the law that gives freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, listen to this, they will be blessed in what they do. Were the servants here in John chapter 2 at the wedding, were they blessed by what they did? Yeah, I think they were. In John chapter 13 is the famous section uh, as part of uh, the uh, Last Supper where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In verses 12 to 17, and he says afterwards, do you understand what I've done for you? And he talks about how even though he is legitimately their Lord and their teacher, yet it was not above him to be a servant to do for others. And he says, now that you understand these things, you will be, same language, you will be blessed if you do them. Doing is the key. Reading and hearing and thinking about and considering well the Word of God is an important part of the process. But there's not a lot to it until we do it. Jesus said, you will be blessed if you do these things. And of course, my favorite, one of my favorites in, in a Bible filled with instructions to do what God says is Luke chapter 6 and 46, where Jesus says, he's teaching a whole crowd of people like this, and he says to them at one point, through slightly clenched teeth, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? 
the instruction that changed everything at Cana was to do whatever he tells you. And that brings us to the second important word. Mary said to the servants and the Holy Spirit says to us, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. That's hard. You thought doing was hard. I think doing is hard. Doing whatever? Oh, man. But it makes sense that it would be that way. God says through Isaiah in chapter 55 and verse 8 and 9, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, saith the Lord, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It makes sense that God, being God, is smarter and wiser than we are. He has a much broader perspective. He's doing 10,000 things at once, all for his glory and our benefit, and we're aware of about three of them. And so, of course, when he says directly to do something, it looks like a whatever. And it doesn't always make sense to us. And that's the way it was at the wedding feast at Canaan. I mean, put yourself in the, in the uh, shoes of the servants. Right? They're, they've got a crisis. Their work is in trouble. Maybe their employment is in trouble. The reputation, their reputation in this community is in trouble, and they probably feel vicariously bad for the bride and the groom and everything that's going to happen. And a woman, a guest from the, uh, from the party says, my son has your solution. Do whatever he tells you. And they're like, great. So they queue up. Jesus, what do you want us to do? And this is what he tells them. Take those big stone jars and take them down to the river or wherever and fill those with water and then feed that out to everybody. In fact, give it to your boss first. That's going to work out great. Can you imagine with that much at stake, that was the instruction. This the servants have to be at that point turning to each other and going, that's the plan? Okay. So the wine is gone and I think we know where it went. Right? That plan doesn't make any sense from an earthly perspective, but God was in it, wasn't he? And that made all the difference combined with they did whatever he said, he told them. And this is what I want to tell you today. In our lives today, here in the so-called modern era, in our situations, sometimes what Jesus tells us to do doesn't make any sense either. Love your enemy Forgive that offense? Are you kidding me right now? Tithe? Ten whole percent? And then offerings besides? Lord, do you understand how tight my finances are? Or how about enthusiastically promote God's kingdom and do what you can to care about people and be joyful just to have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, 
even though you have advanced metastatic cancer. I promised you we were going to get real practical. You see, sometimes what Jesus tells us to do is very straightforward, but often it's whatever. And if we want to see the miracle in our lives that we said at the beginning of this, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't we be changed forever if we could see a miracle? My friends, doing whatever is where that lives. Doing whatever is where that lives. Joelle and I have seen a lot of that in the times that we went to Africa. And we were just beyond what we could figure out. And God showed up there. And he showed up in our family and in a lot of ways. And if you start thinking about it, you'll start to see him showing up in your whatevers too. Do whatever he tells you because that's where the wonder is. Third thing, do whatever he tells you. This is not, doing whatever is not advice you can take from just anybody. That does not go well. I have a very great joy twice every week to babysit my grandson, Calvin. Some of you have met him. He is uh, just a joy. If I could bottle his energy, it could be sold as rocket fuel. (laughs) I sometimes have trouble keeping up with him. But I often find myself being the seven-year-old's plaything. And doing whatever he tells me to does not work out for Grandpa some of the time. Because I cannot keep up with that boy. And in our bigger lives, and sometimes in ways that matter, it's sometimes in ways that fall into the category of store up for yourself treasure in heaven and not treasure here that will just get moth-eaten and used up and rusted Sometimes it becomes very important that we're listening to him, Jesus, and not to someone else. In fact, but it does generally work out if you listen to what Jesus tells you. There's a a famous uh, story in Luke chapter 5, which contains the miraculous catch of fish. Jesus was teaching a huge crowd of people by the shore. Peter and Andrew were there, and the crowd was just crushing on Jesus because he was very popular as a teacher at that time. It was a human car wash, and people couldn't see him. And just So he asked Peter, let me get in your boat and go out onto the water a little ways where there's a little distance, and then I'll teach from there. And after he did... Uh, He dismissed the crowd and he told uh, Peter, let your nets down for a catch. Now, Peter's answer is that, Lord, we have been fishing all night. There are no fish in this lake. I don't know if you've all been fishing, but that's usually my experience. (laughs) Fishing. I mean, I have, I took my family fishing. I rented a boat on Lake Fork, if you know where that is here in Texas. And... They told us at Lake Fork, they they do those big uh, bass fishing shows out of Lake Fork on the TV. And and they have a sign that said, if you catch a very large bass, we need you to come back to here for the Department of Natural Resources and fill out a form about how big was the fish, where did you catch it, um, what kind of lure were you using. And so I asked the lady, how big is big? I mean, at what point do I have to make sure I come back and fill out the paperwork? If you're, listen, if your fish didn't weigh eight pounds, they weren't interested. I said, fellas, we're going to have a great day today. 
But we were out on the lake for probably eight hours. And I tried everything. I did worms and barbers. I did crankbaits. I did jigs. I, I put my head in the water and yelled, here, fishy, fishy. I mean, we didn't catch anything all day. So this Luke 5 passage resonates with me. And he said, Lord, we haven't caught anything all night. There are no fish in this lake. But in verse 5, Peter says, because he says to Jesus, because you say so, I will let down the nets. And, of course, we know what happened, right? His friends had all said, let down the nets, and nothing happened. But when Jesus said, let down your nets right there, even though that was kind of whatever, it worked. So then the question becomes, how do we know when it's Jesus talking? If we're going to give ourselves to the idea of doing whatever he tells us to, I mean, he doesn't talk to me in words that I can hear in my ear. So how do we know when it's Jesus talking and not just Rick Skaronsky, for example, or not just Pastor Booth, or not just uh, the inclinations of our own heart, which if you read the Bible at all, you know is treacherous, Right? Well, there's a couple of ways that I'm going to suggest that are very sure. The first is, if you think perhaps Jesus is telling you to do something, it will agree with Scripture. You can check it before you do it and find out if this is something, especially if it's something, you know, out of the ordinary. If it's in the whatever category, check it against Scripture because God is not going to contradict himself. So something that you are considering doing should be backed either by some direct instruction in in the Bible that's understood in its context, or it will be illustrated as some principle that Scripture agrees with. And that will help you know that this unusual idea didn't just come from yourself or you didn't just hear it from somebody uh, who isn't necessarily a representative uh, of the Lord. And there, there's a Bible example of that too, of course, in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 to 12. It says, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result of that, Many became believers. Now, let me ask you, between the two, who would you say is the more profound, more accurate preacher and teacher of God's intended word through Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul or me, Rick Skronsky? Who do you think would be a better would be a better guy for that? Anybody? Paul, thank you. Yeah, of course, the Apostle Paul. Um, Thanks for at least thinking about it first. (laughs) But listen, if the people who had access to Paul's direct teaching felt it was necessary to check what he was telling them against the word of God, let's not do less than that. For people like me, people like Pastor Booth, people like others that you might see, Roy or the Sunday school teachers, whoever it happens to be, right? So you can know if, if he, Jesus, 
is the one telling you because it'll agree with Scripture and giving a little credit to people like David and Pastor and myself and Roy and guys like that. The Bible also says that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. If you are considering some action, maybe marry this person or get into a relationship with that person or a, a career direction, you know, something that's a little bit less, a little bit more whatever than just thus saith the Lord, it is legitimate to consult with people who, who you know to be legitimate, godly individuals who love the Lord and who have a good grasp of God's word. So you have those two things, so we don't have to run off willy-nilly, but we can safely do whatever he, Jesus, tells us because we can verify what he's telling us and where and whether he, it's really him telling us. And then finally, do, it says, do whatever he tells you. In John chapter 21, in verses 19 to 22, Jesus reinstates Peter. Feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, and so forth. And then he says, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. It says, starting in verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John, saw that the the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him also. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Have you ever asked Jesus that question? What about these? I know that you're trying to tell me that, you know, I should. But what about those guys? What about everybody else? Says Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Now, so do whatever he tells you. Now, some of the whatevers that we get called to do by Jesus are general, our community, because we are the body of Christ together, collectively. So some whatevers are for all of us to do. If Jesus and the wedding at Cana were here in Nacogdoches, it'd be, do whatever he tells all y'all. These are things like, make disciples. Pray on all occasions. Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. These are things for all of us, every, every one of us to do, and that we do corporately. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table here in a few minutes, and that's another one of those plural yous that Jesus tells us to do. But some things, some whatevers, are for you to do individually and me to do individually as the Lord brings us opportunity. Every one of us has people that we are acquainted with who we don't know if they belong to the Lord or not. Maybe they do, but we have never asked them. And I probably can't go to your next-door neighbor and get into a conversation about Christ because I have no relation with, relationship with him at all. But you do. And I know people that you don't know. And if God brings somebody into my life and I know the gospel and have the Holy Spirit living within me, I have everything I need to know. I have everything I need to bring, present the gospel to somebody, and so do you. And it's through those individual relationships that he sometimes asks us to do a whatever. And it's in line with Scripture. And it's one of those things where the quarterback calls that play and 
hollers break, and we're supposed to run to the line of scrimmage and run that play, my friends, and do what it is that, that we do, whether we're the tight end and we're going to catch the pass or we're going to block for the quarterback or whatever it is. So some of the whatevers are for all of us, and some are for us specifically. They're situational, and we just have to be watching for that like the servants in the uh, second chapter of John here. They were watching. They paid attention when Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. And then even though it was whatever, they did it. Which brings us to the conclusion in verse 11. It says in verse 11, This, which was the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And it says, He thus revealed his glory and... His disciples put their faith or their confidence in him. When we give ourselves, we said at the beginning of this, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it just bolster our faith? Wouldn't we have such boldness and confidence if we could see a miracle in our lives? If we commit ourselves, if we are willing to do whatever he tells us, Collectively, and when it comes up individually, the Word of God says that Jesus gets the credit and we get stronger faith. And at the end of the day, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you want? I know it is for me i got one more thing to say, and I'm going to save it for when we gather at the table. So for now, let's pray. Father God, you are always with us. Jesus, you said you will never leave us nor forsake us. You said, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, give us boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through your holy servant Jesus, your only Son. As we are the body of Christ now in our world today, in our generation, of whom Christ is the head, direct us, O Jesus, to the doing of your will for your glory and for our faith and for the good of the world. Amen. One of the amazing things that comes out of this passage comes in the very first sentence of chapter 2 here in John, in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana, and then it describes it. That phrase, on the third day, is stuffed with meaning. For, the, for Christians today, isn't it? Because some very important things happened on the third day. And remember that this is the first public miracle Jesus performed. So this is the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, and this miracle of the wine happens on what John describes as the third day, which made me ask, what happened on the first two days? Well, if you go back into John chapter 1, about halfway through, after John's introduction, you find out that the first day, of which this is the third day, is Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist 
in the Jordan River. And the second day describes Jesus calling the disciples to himself. And then on the third day, we have the miracle of the wine happening. Now, about halfway through Jesus' earthly ministry, James and John come to Jesus and they say, ask, could we sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism, baptism that I must be baptized with? And it's clear that when he, Jesus uses that particular term in that context, that he is referring to his crucifixion. Then we get to the Last Supper. And all the events that followed from that, and we see that Jesus does get baptized with the baptism he was sent to. He was crucified on what becomes the first day of that event. And then on the second day of that event, the disciples are gathered, in that case, in the upper room with the doors locked because of fear of the Jews. They thought they were going to be hauled out and be next, right? And then on the third day... As we know, we have the glorious, miraculous resurrection of Christ, which empowers and proves everything Jesus said about the meaning of his crucifixion, the baptism that he was supposed to have. It all was proved real because of the miracle of the wine that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he proved it on that third day. So like bookends to Jesus' earthly ministry, we have his baptism, the gathering of the disciples, and the miracle of the wine here in John chapter 2. And then at the other end, we have the baptism that he must be baptized with, his crucifixion, and his disciples being gathered on the second day, and then on the third day, we see the realization, the manifestation of the miracle, which is the wine, which is the covenant in his blood, come with power. And here we are today. We have been baptized into Christ, and he has called us to himself generally and specifically today and every Sunday to this table to celebrate and commemorate the miracle of the wine, which is the covenant between God and us in his blood. And we do it to commemorate the original events from 2,000 years ago, to celebrate the fellowship that we have with him and each other now, today, as we do this, and to anticipate the real wedding feast of the Lamb that will one day happen in the new Jerusalem. And it all happens for us right here. Right now. Remember I said I was going to ask you, I was going to challenge you, which group are you in? Are you in the group that saw the miracle and get it? 
and see the wonder of it and you live your life differently because how could you not? Or are you in the group that are so busy trying to get through life and the next day and deal with the problems that it happened and you benefit from it, but you just don't see it as special? This is the test. This is us having the opportunity to marvel at the wonder of the miracle of the wine in this communion that we share with each other and with Christ Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and eternal Father, we thank you for your generous hospitality today around your throne and table. Thank you for receiving us as sons through Jesus Christ, for hearing our praise, our prayers and petitions, for forgiving us our sins. Thank you for feeding us in word and sacrament, for reminding us that we are to adorn the gospel of Jesus and obey your commandments. Fill us with your spirit that we might walk in a manner that pleases you and glorifies your name. Bless us now this day and our feasting and fellowship, for we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Receive now the benediction from 1 John 5, verses 3 through 5. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen.